Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Thank you for that very, very kind introduction. Um, we are so lucky to be um, here in Skylight. We have 12 of these readings a year, six on campus and six off. Um, this is my favorite venue because obviously the tree <laughs> is part of my reason, but also it's a very warm environment. I love the atmosphere here. Um, I know that we pulled out of the Paris climate deal the other day, so buy a book to remedy that. I don't think that there is a connection between those two things. Okay. Um, so I'm pleased to be introducing Jack Foraker, our first reader tonight. Um, he is a first-year fiction writer at the UC Irvine programs in writing, and he is from Davis, California. In the past year, I've had the pleasure to read six of Jack's stories, and my recollection of them is a kind of delirium. They are strange and lonely places filled with strange and lonely people. In one story, a middle-aged Catholic couple only feels sexually satisfied when they watch porn that has been watched by their son. That's the condition of their erotics, uh, that the son has watched the very thing they make love to. In another, a middle-aged woman who lives alone in her dead parents' decaying house collects free things from Craigslist as a kind of life calling. When one day she sees a post on Craigslist for a nine-year-old girl, she promptly retrieves the girl and returns them to her house, whereupon she feeds her honey. I could go on. These stories are the best type of stories in that they have an almost irreducible ambiance. Entering one is like entering a haunted house, only you're the ghost and the house turns out to be everywhere you go. That's what they show you, a world that's always already broken, haunted with loneliness, desperation, decay, and ultimately terribly momentary. If I sound too serious talking about this excellent work, then let me also say this, they're often too very, very funny. Uh, So with that, help me welcome Jack, please. Um, thanks, Shelby. That was a nice introduction. Um, so I think the only thing you need to know is that this is about people who live in like one of those tiny homes that's like attached to a car. That might be the only thing that's not clear in it. Oh yeah, sorry. Yeah, <laughs> my bad. Um, okay. Every morning at 4:30, Dimitri's alarm would go off and wake everyone up. That was another thing about our home. Its size meant that everyone heard everything else. Even whispers reverberated up to normal volume. Everyone would sleepily shift around in response to this alarm, and Dimitri would rise and move through the house. I could see him. He- I could see and hear him walking around, but only halfway, like in one of those dreams you get right before you actually wake up. He would always put on a pair of jeans and a sweatshirt, brew coffee take one of the lawn chairs outside and sit there for a few minutes and then he'd walk down to the beach and to the harbor the boat Dimitri worked on was called the Sandy Dollar and every morning it went out into the Pacific with him and two others on board to troll for salmon I don't think Dimitri liked this job but it didn't seem like he hated it either the way he talked about it made me think he could just turn off his brain whenever he went out to sea I never met the boat's owner 
who Dmitri worked for, just some old guy was all he ever told me about him. But he did sometimes talk about the younger guy he worked with, a boy in his late teens, chubby and baby-faced, who spent all his time chewing dip and letting his brown spit dribble out of his mouth and off the edge of the boat. When they came back in from trolling every afternoon, they dropped off what they caught at the Cato Fishery, a small building on a pier that poked into the harbor like a pointed finger. As for Sarah, she worked with an elderly woman under the table as a kind of assistant. The woman she worked for, I think her name was Mary or something like that, something plain sounding, was the daughter of a man who'd owned a logging company, and she got by on the money that continued trickling in from that. She wasn't very old, Sarah had told me, capable of taking care of herself, but this woman wanted someone to talk to, someone to cook her meals, to keep her house clean, someone who wouldn't stand between her and her vodka martinis. It wasn't hard work from what Sarah said. All she really had to do was listen. She woke up around 8 to get into town and start cooking this woman's breakfast. Nick, on the other hand, didn't wake up until the afternoon. I should say that everyone in my family was a little confusing, but Nick was probably the most confusing. Nick was Ellie's father. He was basically nocturnal and in charge of watching Ellie and me during the day while Dimitri and Sarah were at work. He had this whole routine when he woke up. He'd make a big show of coming down from the lofted sleeping nook and groaning and stretching his whole body out, popping the joints in his legs and back, rolling his neck so that the stiff tendons fire crackered. Then he would go to the front door of our house where he'd installed a polo bar and do as many as he could. So like two. <laughs> then he'd walk down to the beach, which was almost always deserted in this area, south of Crescent City's downtown, wade into the surf up to his knees and splash water on his face. What he wore every day was the same pair of black basketball shorts and one of three sweat-stained tanks. His hair was long and had curdled into oily ropes. He grew out his facial hair but shaved the patches on his cheeks, and he never took off his necklace, which was made from gray twine and a polished green stone the size of a quarter that had the word shiokon engraved on it, Irish for, Irish for peace. It had been a gift from Sarah. After going in the ocean, he'd come back and pour out the coffee left over from when Dimitri made it earlier in the morning, clean the pot, and make some more, complaining all the while that Dimitri hadn't cleaned the pot out after he'd used it. A home requires all hands on deck, was something he said almost all the time. A home requires you to give a shit. Which was funny, because Ellie and I did nothing. We could, we could do whatever we wanted, go down to the beach or up the river, even into town if we felt like it, and stayed together. The only thing we couldn't do was be, seen, was be seen by the campground supervisor because then we'd have to pay more in rent than we currently were. I was nine and Ellie was seven. What Nick spent all day doing was sitting in a lawn chair in front of our home, looking at the Pacific fold and unfold itself, go all tricky with light like unrolled foil, the blue of toughened denim, and also working on his laptop, which was damaged and held together by masking tape at the hinge between screen and keyboard. It overheated easily, so sometimes he'd stand up and carry it around, let the underside catch the wind. He carried a tiny piece of equipment hitched around the waistband of his basketball shorts that acted as a mobile Wi-Fi hotspot. Nick worked as a freelance web designer building websites for restaurants and farms. He made Cato Fisheries website, actually, and set up an online payment system for the customers that bought wholesale from them. 
but he procrastinated on most of these jobs until late at night, which was why his sleeping schedule was so messed up. During the day, he worked on his own projects. One of them that I remember very clearly was called NukeMap. It was a website where you could simulate a nuclear bomb's detonation anywhere in the world and see which areas would be vaporized instantly, which would catch fire, which would be exposed to radiation for the next hundred years, and so forth. You could modify the bomb in a lot of different ways. You could make it burst in the air or on the ground. You could drop a World War II era bomb, or you could drop deadlier, more conceptual bombs designed by the Soviet Union and the U.S., bombs that have never existed outside some underground research facility where they were stored, where they are right now being stored just in case. You could aim it at a city like Sacramento or Seattle, or you could aim it at specific coordinates. Nick explained all this to me one day, and let me play around with it. Here, he said, placing the janky laptop carefully in front of me, go crazy. Like a game, I asked. Yeah, like a game. I adjusted some of the features. I added more radioactive fallout. I increased the yield. I made it an airburst, and I dropped it on Crescent City. Sections of the map on the computer were shaded orange and red to show the areas of damage. No, 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 don't drop it there, Nick said, reaching over and clicking around on the keyboard, pulling down a list of cities. New York, London, San Francisco, Seoul. Pick one of these instead. Why? Because realistically, that's where they'd drop it. I mean, you can look out bumblefuck nowhere if you want, but that's not realistic. The trick is, like, you go for maximum damage. You go for shock and awe. I selected San Francisco. I made it a ground burst RDS-220, the largest bomb available on the drop-down menu. An orange circle swallowed up an area from Santa Rosa to San Jose, the the radius of thermal radiation, where there was a near 100% probability of third-degree burns and nerve damage. Inside that circle was a gray circle that wrapped around most of the peninsula and over into Marin and Oakland, the blast radius, capable of knocking down most residential buildings. And then San Francisco alone was blotted out by a red circle, the fireball, where death was more or less instantaneous and guaranteed. An additional cone of radiation extended off these nested circles all the way into Montana. Crescent City was fine, though. So we're safe here. I mean... Nick said, if we're at the point where a bomb has been dropped, not really. But they wouldn't drop one here, I said. No, no, definitely not. We're not important enough to be targeted, unless they, like, really hate trees or something. So nothing can hurt us here, though, I said. Yeah, sure, nothing can hurt us here, he said. I'm still surprised at how calm I was during this whole thing, as if he was showing me a YouTube video or something. Nick wasn't my dad but he felt sort of like an older brother to me back then, even though he was in his 30s. He was like a much older brother. I now live down south, and I haven't talked to him in years, but even now I sometimes think about this particular conversation, how ironic it was in retrospect, given that the tsunami hit Crescent City just a few months after. I sometimes think about this particular conversation and feel a looming sense of discomfort. I realize it's a stupid thing to worry about. The odds are, of course, Negligible. The odds are almost non-existent. They are almost zero, but they are not zero. Thanks. Thank you. Uh, um, okay, so I'm excited to be introducing Megan. Um, Megan is from Fresno, California, and has a BA in creative writing and literature and a minor in Jewish studies from CSU Long Beach. Um, 
when I read Megan's poetry, I felt sort of the antithesis of my own poetry in a great way um, as I was looking over this thing about atomic bombs. Um, Megan's poetry feels a lot like much quieter bombs. <laughs> um, they're, they're at once gleaming. Um, they, they bring their fingers down into the dirt. Um, they have the sun on their backs, but they also tilt themselves sort of skyward, um, like aimed like telescopes away from Earth. Um, they, and they also sort of seesaw between this prayerful collapse into the self and um, an outward focus that uh, seems to scan the heavens for a light that takes a long time to reach. That was my dumb metaphor I came up with. Um, uh, please welcome Megan. Hi. I'm going to read five poems. This first one is called, Are You Certain? Pliny the Elder was certain, shark teeth fell from the sky during lunar eclipses, and my father is certain that the earth is young, and my aunt tells me people lived with dinosaurs, and my older brother reasons we are all just turbulent organisms that swelled up from the ocean. And out there somewhere, physicists write down formulas that propose the moon is not there when no one is looking. This last one disturbs me the most. I swear it's there. It must be, mustn't it? The damn moon. Doubt is contagious, especially mathematically. I'm a sucker for both. The truth is as slick as electrons. I am certain about that. This next one is called, Because You Asked Me to Write a Poem About You. She speaks only in rivers. She is a turbid joy. Her thoughts are rain clouds heading west. She is a hollow bird. She is a hollow bone in a bird's wing. She does not know how to take flight. She only makes it happen. She loves the sound of nothingness that floats into life and bends reality to its dreams. When she walks, her steps ripple out like raindrops on a small pond. Her hands are firm, waves against a rock. She knows how to capture the light and tilt it toward the loneliness. This next one is called Spring Break. The rain is pulling down some of the white blossoms, pre-plums being torn apart and struck to the ground. The river is high this spring, engulfing the lower deck, adding another layer of green to the old oak. Hank is sleeping on my feet, his paws resting on the rug next to your vans. His orange fur is growing gray, the age spreading out from his snout like a flowering carnation. I am waiting for you to speak, but you won't. So instead, we sit on our parents' couch, humming, your guitar droning, as we look out windows on opposite sides of the living room. This next one is called Carl. It is also set in San Francisco, but there will be no bombs. <laughs> um, the fog is flooding over San Francisco. We sit at the tea lounge, waiting for Josh to call back. I select an oolong off the menu, they're out. We settle for Tolstoy sip, a black tea, traditional Russian style. Thanks, Dad, I say. 
He nods and places down the menu. He tracks the gray climbing the staircase outside, wrapping itself around the empty tables and chairs. He turns, meets my eyes for a moment, checks his phone, says the locals call the Hayes Carl. My finger traces the edge of the white ceramic cup, not yet full. I offer to call my brother again. Dad shakes his head and the tea arrives. It's smoky, I say, like eating a fireplace. He chuckles. The tea is rust-colored. There's a fullness to the flavor, a hint of citrus maybe, or berry. He sips and says he tastes currant, looking awkward with his large hands wrapped clumsily around the small teacup, the steam rising and blurring his chin. I look, out, I look out the window, and the fog has overtaken the glass, making the city seem like it's on fire. He pours me the last bit of tea, not really wanting more. This is the last one. It's called Creation Story. It's two parts, so I'll pause before I read the second part. God is a mother in a vineyard searching for water. She is a woman at a well. She is letting her bucket downward. She is restless to pour it out. The world was swollen, a grape too long on the vine. She climbed into liminal space, felt gravity hug her feet. She was yowling, flooding into the foyer of the universe. She couldn't bear the wounding. She sat and cradled the oceans, set her face toward the sun, stroking the waves, a warm greeting. She blushed, drew upward, headed toward the growls of the cosmos, an ancient astronaut. Her limbs grew wilder, like a redwood fighting for light. Out of her mouth, the moon rose. Then, after salting the black with stars, she rested, knelt back into the stratosphere, and placed her name, the smallest truth, within the formless void. Thanks. It's my pleasure to introduce William Hawkins. William is a third-year fiction student, and he hails from Louisiana. I had the good fortune of reading one of his stories this past week and was engaged and moved by his patient and emotive prose. His characters are alive, each sentence layering their world and their pain for the reader. The people that make up William's work are incredibly intuitive and observant, which is so carefully juxtaposed with plain and matter-of-fact language. The imagery in the world of the speaker is wild and lively, somehow made more prominent by the trust William puts in clear, concise description. The surrounding world accompanies the tension of the characters' lives, adding a rich experience for the reader. These characters, characters see so much of the world around them and others while acknowledging so little of their own pain. This gives the reader a gorgeously complex glimpse at the enigma of human emotion, perfectly displaying the ways in which we both inhabit and reject our most fraught experiences. William is a writer with extreme attention and care, and I am excited to hear him another, to hear him again. Please welcome William Hawkins.
Megan, wow, that was amazing. I don't know when our introductions got so intense, but like, they are intense now. Uh, Corinna, I don't know what your expectation, expectations are, but like, yeah. Uh, I'm going to read two pieces. One is a paragraph, and the other is four pages, double-spaced. People get antsy at the third reader. Also, I do not condone reading with your iPad. I'm just, I don't have a working printer, and I apologize. Don't tell Michelle, those of you in the know. Uh, All right, this is the weird one paragraph one. In Bellevue Park, I saw a little girl blow herself up. It happened on the playground. Her playmates watched calmly as she shimmied, hard enough to shake the bones loose inside her, her voice a rocket liftoff as the invisible explosion swept her off her feet as she fell back on the rubber-padded ground. She looked up at her friends and said, I'm in pieces now, and then scowling at their stoic reaction, saying, you're supposed to be sad. All right, and this one is called Snow and Ice Cubes. Leon sees a wedge of purple between two thunderclouds, a deep but brilliant violet, violet, the same color he sees when he squeezes his eyes shut on the sun. They're coming for him, these thunderclouds, chewing off the sky between. These clouds are greedy. Doesn't surprise Leon. Of course the clouds are greedy. The world is greedy. Leon knows this. Leon has greedy in his reach, not a foot below him, a mop of toilet brown hair attached to the pudgy body of a kid, still in his school uniform, Navy slacks, a red polo with the stitched seal of a school over his heart. One of those Catholic schools. Leon didn't go to a Catholic school or any school with a saint's name. No, the saints were never meant for Leon. He leans over the sill of the open window and speaks. So do you know what you want? It's between tiger's blood and pink lemonade, the kid says back, glancing at Leon, but only just, and Leon knows why. Because the boy sees an old black man and boom, full stop. Maybe there's a brief impression of the red eyes, a whiff of cheap whiskey weekends, the sour smell of a bar bathroom, but probably not. The eyes are untroubled in their round face, fat face, three meals a day with three desserts face, and an afternoon snowball in the middle. Fat, white face with eyes that only sees faces. That's what this boy has. Leon thinks the kid's name is Henry, maybe Howard. The other kids call him something like that when they come over, riding on their bikes after school, ever since the first weekend of May, when the snowball stand opened. Excited, these kids that come to him. They know the snowball stand is a sign of the coming summer. It's a way they read time. These kids who love knowing that tomorrow will soon be yesterday. Leon sells snowballs from his brother-in-law's stand next to his brother-in-law's gas station. It's a cheap plywood shed painted light blue with a tin roof on top and a white sign hammered next to the window facing front. His sister has a good hand. She's the one who printed out the flavors in careful block letters. Wedding cake, blackberry, cherry wild, bubblegum, fuzzy navel, dreamsicle, red hot, tutti frutti, lemon, lime, and nectarine, plum, spearmint, and root beer, pink lemonade, tiger's blood. Chocolate syrup on top, 50 cents extra. Condensed milk on top, 50 cents extra. This boy, this probably Henry, maybe Howard, will get condensed milk on top. A snowball isn't enough for this one. Leon knows this. But first he has to pick a flavor. First he has to point, so go on, boy, point. At the rows of bottles shelled behind Leon, the rainbow line of sugar syrups. Pick a flavor and Leon will make the snowball. He's waiting, his hand on the machine next to him. What looks like a deli meat slicer, except it's a block of ice fitted inside. 
to be grinded into tiny snowflakes, each one unique and a giant featureless lump of white. Hurry up and choose, Leon says. There's a storm behind you. The storm is why probably Henry is alone. The other children have better sense. This one, this one has the school uniform, which is probably the closest thing he'll ever have to learning. This is what Leon tells himself, how he comforts himself. Poor Leon. I guess a large tiger's blood, the kid says, with condensed milk and chocolate syrup. Leon picks out a large styrofoam cup, sticks it in the appropriate end of the machine, flips the switch. The machine tries to roar, but there's a block of ice jammed in his throat, so all it does is gargle a pack of razors. Snow fills the cup, white, unblemished. When Leon was a kid, he sucked on ice cubes. Mr. Whittaker gave them to, gave them to him. And Mr. John Whittaker, who ran the company store in a logging camp, long lost in 1948. They'd go a whole troop of barefoot black children in threadbare clothing. They still called them pickaninnies. That's how old Leon is. And Mr. Whittaker, white as, sure, why not, an unblemished snowball, he always gave them ice cubes. Always. Never seemed bothered by their happiness. But then they said Mr. John Whitaker was strange. They had stories about him in the logging camp. He was a fairy, he was slow, his dick had been blown off in the war, his head had been scrambled. He gave them ice cubes. He gave Leon ice cubes. All the disappointments of the years between that logging camp and the snowball stand, the long frustrations and the kinfolk dead, and Leon remembers how those ice cubes tasted, the sudden cold on the roof of his mouth, the dirty, ragged world, suddenly nothing but cold. But why bother remembering what good were ice cubes in the end? Wind comes through the window, knocks on the back wall. It tastes like the color orange. The styrofoam cup is filled. Leon turns off the machine and sighs into the silence after it. Where do you live, kid? Probably Henry, maybe Howard, tilts his head at the old face in the window. Where do I live, he repeats. The clouds are on them. How far do you have to ride that bike home? A couple blocks, the kid says slowly, as if he has to count them in his head. You're not going to make it before the storm hits. Why don't you come in here, wait out the worst? You can put the tiger's blood in yourself. Snowball in the house. He tries to smile. Didn't Mr. Whitaker smile? Isn't this how this goes? But don't let the other kids hear about it. Capiche? The boy tilts his head back the other way. He parts his lip. His lips. A whisper escapes like steam. Are you a pedophile? The wind really does taste orange, as if those rain clouds were pouring on a bottle of dreamsicle in the world, only sour, all that sugar gone sour. What did you say? You're a pedophile, aren't you? The little boy's lips curl, but his eyes lord, his eyes gleam with delight. It's delight. This little boy is delighted. You're a dirty old pedophile. Something tugs Leon's shoulder. He looks down to see what? It's his arm. Small miracles. He follows it, which leads him to the styrofoam cup, which leads him to the arc of snow, for a moment suspended pause, as if it too is looking around, seeing where it is. And Leon watches it all collapse on the boy's face. Cold ice, a direct hit, right in the eyes, nose, the lips. So cold it burns. You forget it, living in the land of snowball stands. Cold burns. The boy screams, flaps both his flaps both hands at his face and screams. The scream breaks down to a wail, and he's crying as he runs back to his bike as he pedals away, sobbing. The whole performance Leon watches carefully. He feels something. Leon feels something as the first raindrops splatter the pavement outside the little window of his snowball stand. It could be disappointment, or it might be satisfaction, to learn that he did not become Mr. Whitaker after all, that Mr. Whitaker did not become him. Leon closes his window as the storm breaks to be alone with this feeling, to figure on it and wait for what comes after.
now the introduction. Um, it is my pleasure. It is my pleasure to now introduce our final speaker, Corinna Rosenthal, a second-year poet at our program. Um, you know, I tried to do it. I tried to do the little big metaphor thing, and it's just horrible. It's absolutely horrible. But you know what really Corinna is, and what I know about her. I want you to notice that when she's up here reading her poetry, she like has it so well-timed and memorized, and she conducts it so well. Um, some of us, we might forget what we write, and so we have to read very carefully as we're up here gabbing. Corinna doesn't. Um, her, she treats her work with such care and respect, and her loyalty is always to her art, and that's really a rare thing. Um, it's kind of too rare. I don't think my first loyalty is to my art, but hers is. And she's an artist who understands how important it is to be an artist. Um, and, that's, and that's why, more than anything, I'm so happy to have gotten the chance to know her and now have the chance to introduce her. So here we are, the best for last, Corinna Rosenthal. <laughs> I'm thirsty. <laughs> that was ridiculously generous, but thank you. <laughs> Am I too loud? Not loud enough. That can't be true. Um, so this is about 12 minutes long. I'm letting you know in case it seems like it's lasting a really long time. It's not actually lasting a really long time that's in your head. Um, and then the other thing to know is that um, this is from, these pieces are from a larger body of work um, titled Dark Assistance. Um, and basically, um, I can't remember anything I was going to say because I feel nervous. <laughs> Basically, there are a series of poems or flashes that move in a nonlinear fashion, and I've tried to sort of uh, arrange these ones in a way in which they are somewhat fluid for you. So, I'm still very thirsty. Need a moment. <clears throat> there is a force, and I am not in control. Mood on a hook, cat by the scruff, the earth performs kindness pulling you from suffering before you knew how good it was. Pure bend to the sip. The way sad people pick up objects is different. Like they are underwater trying to perform the life of a dry person. Dripping down the staircase, sadness is almost boneless. This long, he holds up a piece of just cut string. Since I've touched anyone, 
It has been this long, a damaged voice spoke, and he cut another, tying the two strings together. To the damage, he said, You must know what it's like all night long to have to hold your pulse with both hands. And he tore down his feathered mask, his face pure, pure face. He closed his eyes and the damaged voice appeared repaired. Its breath poured like bones through his hair. When my punishment arrived, his sobbing in the dark shower slamming through both our bodies. As if without option, life did this for hours. Out the window, each individual pine tree needle endured faint wind pushes. And so, oh, out of that kind of unkind kindness, I vanished without consent. You need it only in exactly sometimes. Dropping down now, fighting on the tangled mint green nightgown, I ask the cat into bed with dripping sounds from a flooded basement I make with my tongue. Why won't the want quit? I whisper, beg the night head. That's the head of night, the one in charge of darkness. I like the dark time best. He therefore commands me to a significant degree. Want is a burning awareness. It is a calling he corrects. It is to fly down on deep, deep repeat. I ask him what qualifies the human. Touch qualifies all bodies. Then mine is incredibly nonspecific. If it hurts, even after birth, you remain nameless into your existence. This namelessness, it's just a feeling. I breathe the hooks in and breathe the hooks out. Effective introspection requires eradicating proximity to every single human. Then the details flip repeatedly open. But we are free, he says to me. It is too hard to be free this way with you. Then we'll go. How do we get again to the risen things? Oh, you do not have to ask or long when you are one of them. Long morning, walk in the snow, flickering down like bone. My thought is don't rush through all of the edges risen for you. One life is an unplugged apparatus when left in the dark all by itself. His kindness, each word from him delicate as if typed directly onto a water surface. Stop dragging me into the light. I practically said that, didn't I? Get away from me is a very condensed direct translation of meaning. I was shoving very fine bones, a very fine throat, 
down to the hard surface at the bottom, and then the surface vanished. Find the feeling that reverberates like a wire to tightrope back 26 years to childhood where the cat is dead. I tell my sister, she says I like to lie to her. It comes intuition, but that's just little white stones flashing cold in the revolving stomach. The telephone rings, mother hurries out, screen door swinging. After being beaten in the graveyard by a man with a stick, the dead cat comes back in the green pickup truck. The four of us children each have a turn being held up over the tailgate to look at it. Sudden snow, sharp thing. What your bones want will find me spinning. What's your excuse? Impossible to unhook from the other, and still you have to do it. Appear to him, sudden snow, trembling in the open doorway of his kitchen. Note to invisibility magnetically pinned to the refrigerator behind him. Tell me why I keep doing this sharp thing to myself in your name. You cannot have what your bones want will hurt you too much. Tell me where to find you. Don't find me, I say, spinning myself away. Three spins and I'm in, an essential cellar deep center. I bounce off its dark water and back in front of him. You weren't gone for long, he whispers into the kingdom of my hair down. Singular wing exits the rhythm. Get all the way home, it's day, but take the night roads. Climb the apartment steps with both hands. Three sets whirls you up to your inner exit. In doing this, the face gets long hair drenched. Desire is a cinch. To alleviate introspective straining, there is a moment in which... The smallest throbbing sphere gets stilled and sharpened and transported to the desire examiner's need to microscope longing. I feel cut out of. Pain is a prompt. For what? Dragged by a cord through a familiarly lit hole to his versified breathing, riding alongside your own. All of the time, if you ask, this is yours to have. Hail the small white stones and his eyes turned on. Lights off, window lifted to a collapsed elevator shaft. 
such thin frozen wind strings slip in on erratic almost night rhythms get out of the bath and back into what you burnt please just let me smell your breath he asks why I insist on knowing what I can't touch Reverse the stir that brought self-torture. And so begins craving's counter-rhythms. This method boils. Healing is the same as the pain sometimes. I can't tell the difference. Tell the difference now. So small, shoved back into the kitchen by mother's mother's boyfriend's enormous yelling. That night stabs an instant winter in the nerves. The four of us children swinging in the dark like ropes, that usefully useless and that exposed. Strange noises from mother's bedroom. What form has she taken? White shadow hum of the refrigerator left open too long. The tea kettle like hardened cloud material. Insect wings ticking against the window. At the side of the plum-painted house, pressed almost completely together, hiding in the shadow of a rosebush tangle, get pushed to the surface. I've noticed that you are practically perfect. A clean string of light from his eyes communicates. I've noticed that you are almost completely perfect in my absence, I announce, my mouth laughter clamped open by my own cruel flirting. I wait this time for him to touch me first. He will choose a bone. He spins his finger around me. Then it's my bare knee he reaches down for with two fingers tapped tapping like upward water. Pouring my tongue into the burning, hey, I say, calling him in to the night kitchen. What do you think of sound hunting? Are there weapons? Yes, there are weapons. Why go after a thing you can't catch? No, no, it's the other way around. The sound comes after us. That's it. Thanks. So thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.